Hey, are you a business owner, entrepreneur, or professional? If so, we want you to apply to be a featured guest on our show. My name is Adam Torres, and I host the Mission Matters series of podcasts. I've recorded over 3,000 episodes, and we are just getting started. How do you know if you'd be a good guest to be on the show? Well, only one way to find out, and that's to apply, but I'm going to let you in on a little secret. We want guests that have a story to tell, guests with a brand, a product, or a service that can benefit my audience of listeners. If this sounds like you, go to missionmatters.com and click on Be Our Guest to Apply. I'd love to talk to you and get to know more about your story. Again, head on over to missionmatters.com and click on Be Our Guest to Apply. All right, now let's get into the show. Hey, I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Mission Matters. My name is Adam Torres. You can follow me on Instagram at AskAdamTorres. And if you'd like to apply to be a guest on one of our shows, just head on over to the website, missionmatters.com, and click on Become a Guest to Apply. All right, so today I have Dean Sonderegger on the line, and he's SVP and General Manager of Walters Kluwer Legal and Regulatory U.S. Dean, welcome to the show. Hey, Adam. Thanks for having me. All right, Dean. So uh, excited to talk about today's topic. So really um, innovative business practices, um, staying ahead of the competition. I mean, we have a lot to cover here. So excited to get into this with you and also to learn more about um, Walters Kluwer. Um, but before we get into that, I'll start this show with our Mission Matters Minute. So Dean, we at Mission Matters, we amplify stories for entrepreneurs, executives, and experts. That's our mission here. Dean, what mission matters to you? Thanks, Adam. I think for me, the thing that's really interesting is driving innovation, in particular within a larger company, uh, within perhaps a mature market. So how does one drive change and increase value in the offerings that uh, go into customers? Uh, that's kind of the thing that gets me up in the morning. Uh, I, I started off my life as a software engineer, believe it or not, and went through, like a lot of people, a uh, venture capital-funded startup that went flew very high and then crashed very hard. And that made me sit back and start to think about not how one builds things, but rather how one figures out what is interesting and compelling to customers. And so that's the thing I love uh, and kind of live and breathe every day. That's awesome. Um, and lo love bringing mission-based uh, entrepreneurs and executives and experts on the line to share why they do what they do. Um, so maybe just to get us kicked off, uh, let give us a little bit more about Walters Kluwer Legal and Regulatory U.S. So tell us a little bit more about the company, please. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Adam. So Walter Fleur is uh, a, a business that has several lines of business, one of which is legal uh, information and services. Uh, so our customers are law firms, uh, legal departments, uh, and we, are, we have a legacy, if you will, of uh, being a publisher. So if you walk back in time, and we still have some of this in our business, uh, we, um, we would create books and periodicals and, and sell actual print uh, to customers. We still have a small part of that, uh, but increasingly what we're doing at this point in time is saying, how do you take that legacy of uh, domain knowledge and content and start to infuse that into uh, a legal professional's workflow? And really with the idea that uh, would I want to be able to provide you the right content, insights, whatever have you at the time of need uh, to drive better efficiency for a legal professional and ultimately to drive a better outcome. And so a lot of what we are doing in our business is changing, turning the boat, if you will, is changing a business that's long-lived. The company has been in business for over 150 years uh, and really providing 
new and innovative solutions to a, a market that's very much in need of them at this point in time. Yeah, when you say that, and especially when you think about, um, you know, the legal profession and what, what changes it's had, I, I've just noticed um, throughout the years. And in terms of marketing, you know, once, once upon a time, you weren't allowed to market, right? Or it wasn't considered something you do. You go, you, you go back far enough, right? And so now thinking about innovation specifically in that space, like, like what does that look like? Like, because you have a unique vantage point, um, trying to really innovate and update, so to speak, a, you know, a very, you know, um, and I'd say what many would consider a uh, very um, older fashion at times um, industry could be, depending on the look, right? So what what is innovation? Yeah, I think that right there? One, one can say um, in a lot of ways that uh, at least until a few years ago, law was practiced with different tools, but very similarly to what it was practiced 200 years ago. And not notepads, but you have computers and things like that. I think the the biggest difference that you see at this point in time is just the ability to collect process information and to to put it into an actionable form. Uh, So you can think about things such as um, when I'm looking, when I'm going into court, for instance, um, uh, now, uh, as I think about whether or not I should go and, and enter into a motion uh, for something to occur in court, I can really look and say, well, what has happened in the past? And you could say, well, gosh, you know, out, out of the similar fact pattern, uh, out of the last 20 times that this particular judge, 19 of these things have been struck down and only one succeeded. And you could say, well, <laughs> it's kind of like money ball if you think about it from a baseball perspective. Mm-hmm. So that prevalence of data um, in an actual form uh, really allows us to make different decisions, uh, and it kind of pervades through all types of law. I, I give you an example of litigation, but if you can think about that in terms of contract law, you know, what is the standard for an employment agreement or for a lease or something like that? Uh, what language is typically used and why? Um, what has been disputed in the past? And so really the ability to start to pull that into the attorney's um, desktop uh, or the researcher's desktop so that they're very informed with these things. Otherwise, what happens is that, and this has happened with me a number of times, you find yourself with two sets of counsel across the table from each other arguing about what their own relative knowledge of the law is. Like, you know, this never happens. This never occurs. It's very different when I'm able to look at, you know, a body yeah. of, of contracts or of, of case law and say, well, yeah, it actually does occur 90% of the time here. Wow. That's uh, that that's definitely new, and I can see it. And because it's been in other professions for so long, I feel like the people that um, that get their hands up and that's kind of embrace this um, this concept and this thought process, I feel like there's a lot of opportunity there. Am I wrong? Yeah, I think that there is, and I think that it's it's a it's a bit of a challenging market um, in the sense that you know attorneys by education are taught to challenge things and to issue tests. And so, uh, so you have a, you know, a customer base that is uh, in a mode where they are uh, really, uh, I guess, skeptical of advances, and not in a bad way. It's just that that's the yeah. way they work, and it makes them very good at their job. Uh, and I think that, uh, but what you're starting to see now is you're starting to see the demand from client uh, is such that I, I want increased value out of the services that you're providing for me. Uh, so, to give you an example, if I'm doing. Uh, an acquisition of a company, a, a typical thing that you do when you acquire a company is you look at all of their contracts and, you know, are there terms and conditions in any of the supplier or customer contracts, such as perhaps the contract can't be assigned uh, to the new purchaser? And and you go through and forth through those things. Well, technology does that very, very quickly now. And so, so the people that are hiring attorneys 
have gotten much more savvy in saying, hey, I know that you sh there's technologies out there. I really want you to be using that um, uh, if you want to be doing work for me. So that's, I think, you're starting to see this pull from the market. But the interesting thing about that is, is you start to think about innovation uh, on that. You start to say, well, how do you capture the hearts and minds of, of the customers uh, in a way so, so they see this and really want to adopt it um, and use it in their practice? And then secondarily, uh, how is it that if you've been doing business providing tools that look and taste and smell and feel uh, differently than, uh, than, than these new innovative things, how do you get your company to kind of lean in and start to do very different things also to produce these things for customers? So you have kind of a supply-demand challenge on both sides. It's not just enough to get the market interested in stuff. you got to get yourself to a point where you're able to deliver those things also. What are the um, what are the sizes of firms like that you typically or that get the most value? Is this only for like really large firms or mid-sized firms? Like, give us a feel. Because and the reason I ask, by the way, is because we have large audiences in Chicago, New York, LA. It's a lot of big markets, and I know there's people that are that are going to be potentially interested in connecting. But I want to make sure that the right types of you know all firms yeah do, sure uh, reach out. Yeah, so I think that it's interesting the the um, the the way the question presents, if you will, is it, it differs on what you're trying to do. So there are tools that make a lot of sense for to the top 200 law firms, to the thousand lawyer law firms sitting out there, uh, and then there are tools that make a lot of sense for you know uh, five to 25 to 50 law firm um, attorney law firms, right? And so and so that. Yeah, if you think about that, that's 200,000 or so in that five to 50 kind of range law firms, whereas the, the, the top uh, 500 to 1,000 law firms typically have more money to invest. And so, so but that's kind of where you're at. Hmm. No, that's helpful. And so um, for those firms that, you know, have kind of gone down that path of innovation, or even transformation for that matter, um, what kind of feedback have you re have you kind of received on some of the things? Because you're doing this day in and day out. Like, what kind of feedback do you receive on this? Well, it, it's interesting. I think that the um, the profession goes through a little bit of a reckoning of, of, of where the strengths are. Um, uh, so I think that the, the temptation in a lot of cases for some customers, the larger customers that have a lot of money to invest, if you will, is to start off by trying to build things themselves. And, uh, and, and I think a lot of the feedback that you get from them is that or what they find when they start to do that is that they realize that they're getting into a different business. Right. And I think that a, a lot of what you, you give advice for people is uh, is to stick to kind of the knitting that you're very good at. So a large law firm that's got fantastic lawyers probably isn't as well situated to develop software products, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that that's a challenge that you walk through. But the other, uh, I think, piece of feedback that you get is you've got to get people um, into a mode where they depart from the traditional billing practice, I guess, if you will, that they've had. So the typical model for professional services firms in general is I, I'm billing you on an hourly basis. Um, and I scale up the hours that I can produce. Um, that's how I drive my revenue. And if I'm, you know, a good employee, I, I bill a lot of hours. Um, and, and when you start to put efficiency pieces in place, it throws that on its ear a little bit. Say, now I might be able to do the same work a tenth of the time that I can. And so I can charge you a fixed fee for that amount. Um, that still is very profitable for me, but I have to come to terms with the idea that I'm not pulling as much in on the top line uh, because I'm not billing 
uh, as, as many hours for a particular engagement. Now, the, the, the obvious um, assumption or extension of that is that from a business standpoint, if I've got, uh, you know, if I'm much more efficient, I probably don't need as many laborers or attorneys. And I think that if you look, um, the, the market that I would say kind of preceded this uh, is the tax uh, market. So when you look at what happened with mandatory e-file and CPA firms, what you found is that the number of returns filed stayed pretty much constant after all of these tax prep tools uh, came into place. Uh, it's the um, equivalent of the uh, um, turbo taxes, but they, all the accounting firms use, use professional versions of the same types of things. But the number of accountants that they required to do that dropped dramatically. So I think what you get to is that idea of, hey, I can have fewer attorneys on staff uh, and I have, and then I can bill out probably the same amount of money. I'm just more effective and I'm much more profitable. That's a huge jump or leap of faith for these firms. And, and so there are firms that have invested in, and what you find out is that the firms invest in technology start to, to grow profits faster than their peers. In some cases, revenues faster than their peers, but they've got to get to that, uh, across that chasm, if you will. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And when you, as you're saying it, I'm thinking to myself, yeah, because and just uh, just going back to the example you mentioned a moment ago, when you're talking about um, um, they're going to acquire a company, and you have to see if it makes sure that those contracts can be um, assumed or taken on, right? And so just that amount of labor, if you can get a software to do that, and X amount of time versus um, manually or reviewing it all manually, then I mean, just the labor cost savings there alone and I feel like it, it it just continues like in different parts of the of the um of just the legal process in general, right? Absolutely. And I think that the thing that's 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 interesting is that you can start to say, oh my god goodness, what's gonna happen then uh and, and most people that aren't in the legal market might not think, oh my God, what's gonna happen to poor lawyers that don't have work? Um but <laughs> but the reality <laughs> the reality is, is that I think from a societal standpoint, we have an access to justice problem in our country, right? So most people um, that uh, are living, uh, they may see an attorney if they get divorced, if they want to get a will, but by and large, it's too expensive for them to hire counsel uh, for, for, for most types of day in and out things. And a lot of people, um, you know, uh, who are leasing apartments and things like that, who may be facing eviction, that is a huge problem in terms of the number of attorneys and affordable legal care. So I think that the other implication that as you start to go down market on this is that you, you have a large amount of demand. It's just hard to satisfy that demand right now with um, on a manual basis. So as you start to get better tools in place, uh, it makes that more cost effective and it increases the volume. And I think you've seen that also, just to take my analogy further, I think it's much easier, for instance, for people uh, to get uh, you know, professionally prepared tax return than it used to be if you went 10, 15 years ago. Um, you have, you know, places in strip malls that will do that and, and will give you an advance for your refund and all those types of things. And that's all been technology driven. I think you'll see something very similar um, in law occur over the next decade or two. That's awesome. Well, Dean, I'll tell you, uh, this has been great having you on the show and learning more about what you do today today, but also um, just seeing what, how you're really working hard with you and your team to um, to really push the bar in terms of um, innovation uh, in the legal field. I think it's great, and I think it's uh, it's a big task, and uh, excited to hear uh, the updates and, and what, you, what you're doing. Um, that being said, if somebody is listening to this right now and they want to learn more and they want to um, connect with your team, I mean, what's the the best way for them to do that? 
Yeah, thanks, Adam. Um, so the, the company is Walter Kluwer, and it's W-O-L-T-E-R-S. Um, and uh, you can go to our website, WaltersClure.com. And I always love to connect with people. So um, if you type Dean and Walters Kluwer or Dean and Sunderegger, if you can spell it, um, uh, you'll find me on LinkedIn pretty quickly and uh, would love to connect with anybody who's uh, interested in either uh, tracking on things that we've got going on or having a conversation or anything like that. So I would certainly invite the, the listeners to, uh, to, to reach out that way, too. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Dean, for coming on the show. And to the audience, as always, thank you for tuning in. Hope you got a lot of value out of this. Hope you learned a lot. If you did, don't forget, hit that subscribe button, especially if you're a first-time listener or visitor. We definitely have many, many more mission-based entrepreneurs, executives, and experts coming up, and we don't want you to miss a thing. And Dean, thanks again for coming on the show. Really enjoyed it. Thanks so much, Adam. We appreciate it.